My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, May 25th, 2011. You always gotta love it when, you know, you, you check the Weather Channel website and it says Tornado Watch. Yeah. After seeing what these things have done to other people, I am just not interested in being close to one. And I hate having my zip code being under a Tornado Watch. Yeah. My wife likes it. Why? I don't know. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and uh, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. You can think of this like a as like a college level course, an ongoing college level course on biblical discernment. That's you know what we're all about here, and uh, today is no different. Although uh, we're gonna do something a little bit different in that we're going to be doing our light edition for the week today. And what I've chosen for you for today is uh, is rather interesting. Um, this is going to be a two part, um, basically a two part. Um, lecture that I'm going to be playing from uh, Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis, and uh, he's he's not a theologian, he's a historian, and the name of his lecture is entitled Orthodoxy, Pietism, and the Schism of the Lutheran Soul, and uh, and fascinating lectures. If you're not familiar with uh, pietism, and you know, in Lutheran circles, we talk about pietism, and and you know, I'm part of uh, the Nicio Lutheran uh, strain, if you would, uh, confessional Lutherans, uh, more akin to uh, the Orthodox. And those of you uh, wondering what that means, basically, what that means is the ELCA is a bunch of apostate heretics. So <laughs> that's what that means. And I, you know, so 
you know, you, you kind of have to know your uh, your alphabet soup if you want to understand Lutheranism. But Pietism is a pernicious problem, and so it's rather interesting uh, to hear these lectures uh, presented by uh, Dr. Van, uh, Daniel Van uh, Voorhis, and um, worth the listen. Now, before I get to today's uh, lecture, what I want to do is uh, you know, kind of a house cleaning item, and I'll remind you about this uh, probably on today's program and tomorrow's. And that is is that uh, Lane Chaplin has uh, contacted me, and uh, he does a video podcast on uh, YouTube. And fa- great stuff. Uh, yeah, even though he's going to be an attorney, he's just a great kid. Hopefully, being an attorney won't mess him up. But <laughs> I just have to always get my attorney digs in. Anyway, uh, he is going to be interviewing uh, Kim Riddlebarger, who is uh, you know he is a very well learned. Uh, theologian in the area of eschatology. You all ha- heard him many times on the uh, the White Horse Inn. And so Lane Chaplin's going to be uh, interviewing him regarding Harold Camping coming up in a couple of weeks. And he's soliciting uh, you, our listening, uh, my listening audience, uh, for any questions that you would like to have posed to, uh, to Kim Riddlebarger regarding Harold Camping. And so if you have a burning question that you, you know, that you would like to ask a theologian who knows his salt uh, when it comes to eschatology uh, regarding Harold Camping, send the email to me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, and I'm going to collect those, and I'm going to forward them on to Lane uh, so that uh, you know he can sort through them and uh, and hopefully ask Kim Riddlebarger the questions. And then when uh, that video podcast is posted, I'll let you all know. But uh, I thought that, that little, little uh, cross-pollination going on there with the uh, Internet. Anyway, so uh, without any further ado, here is uh, Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis and his uh, lecture, Orthodoxy, Pietism, and the Schism in the Lutheran Soul. Today's talk, uh, just so you know, is, is purposely on the, on the smaller side. Uh, and that is because a history of the Lutheran Church from 1546 through the uh, you know, 18th, 19th century uh, would be impossible this morning. Uh, So as I present this very short, abbreviated uh, history, please be thinking of questions as I'm talking so that I can be more specific in whatever interests you uh, this morning. Uh, This talk is entitled, Orthodoxy, Pietism, and the Schism in the Lutheran Soul. And I'll begin with something Martin Luther wrote He says, the historians, therefore, are the most useful people and the best teachers, so that no one can ever honor, praise, and thank them enough. (laughs) This statement did not make the Catechism or Book of Concord, so you are not bound by it, and perhaps, after I confound and confuse you this morning with historical developments, definitions, and so forth, you will likely be neither honoring, praising, nor thanking me. But here we go. It does serve us both uh, to be reminded uh, that I am a mere historian. I'm not a theologian uh, or a pastor. During our question and answer session, I will handle your questions on today's topic, but there may be a question or two reserved best for the Hodels and Rodies and Rosenblatts of this world. Now, I've entitled this talk, Orthodoxy, Pietism, and the Schism in the Lutheran Soul, and and I borrowed that section on the schism in the soul uh, from a book on Whitaker Chambers and Alger Hiss, Uh, but I think it serves us this morning. 
The competing claims of Lutheran orthodoxy and pietism can be existential crises. It can divide not only individuals and Christian churches, but it can also cause personal angst and confusion as to the nature of the Christian faith in both thought and practice. Now, this schism can be best, perhaps, cleaned up with better definitions. However, it can also be a schism that divides us due to the possible unintended consequences based on faulty assumptions as to the nature of the Christian faith. This morning, I will provide a brief historical background for the time period uh, from the mid-16th century through the early 18th century. I will attempt to define the important terms. Lutheran orthodoxy, pietism, and piety as understood in this context and suggest a reason, possible reason, for the division in the church then and maybe, just maybe, today. In 1546, Martin Luther died. That he would be pessimistic that his movement would not succeed was not far-fetched. There were serious battles on many fronts. From within the Lutheran church, from other Protestant groups, that is the Calvinists, the Anabaptists, and from the Roman Catholic church. And there were sometimes quite literally battles. Two months after Luther's death, his old foe, the Catholic Emperor Charles V, soundly defeated Protestants at the Battle of Muehlberg, and the capitulation of Wittenberg left the birthplace and center of Lutheranism in Catholic control. What started with vigor in the 1520s was perhaps a mere 20 years later on its own deathbed. What happens next is perhaps a story for another time. But the movement did not die. Through a series of revolts led by Lutheran princes and electors, within nine years of the battle at Muehlberg, Charles V agreed to a peace with the Lutheran church, the Peace of Augsburg, 1555. Lutheranism, for the first time in its history, was recognized as a legal profession of faith, in the Holy Roman Empire. Once again, I don't have the time to tell you all that happened next. But over the next two decades, the Lutheran Church faced controversies that threatened to devastate the Church even more than that possibly fateful defeat at Muehlberg. With an established Church now, the battles began within the Lutheran Church. The nature of faith and good works, the freedom of the will, and other key doctrines laid down by uh, the, the formula of Concord and Augsburg Confession were now be, or the Augsburg uh, Confession were now being questioned. Through the theological and social tribulation, a number of Lutheran theologians laid down the quintessential doctrine of the Lutheran Church in the documents that comprise the Book of Concord, which was adopted in most Lutheran territories in the year 1580. So, 
All is well. Not so fast. If things were that easy, people such as myself would be out of work. We need plot twists and the Lutheran church obliged. Social concerns would, would loom large. The unanswered question of the legitimacy of other Protestant churches, uh, the Calvinists and others, uh, led to confusion and strife with the emperor. The Turkish threat from the east became even more ominous. Soon a relatively minor event in Prague, a defenestration occurred. That is, during a dispute as to who was the rightful emperor or king of Bohemia, um, there, a few Protestants threw a delegation of Catholics out of a window. That's called a defenestration. Uh, this would start the beginning. Defenster, de- fenster, one of the. Uh, this would spark the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, a war that would lead to as many, as much as two thirds of the population of Europe dead in certain areas. This also helped to spread disease and plague. And as the Black Death in the Middle Ages would cause theological confusion, so we can see this war and plague and death doing a similar thing. Now, with regard to the doctrine of the Lutheran Church, it had been set down in 1580. But even so, there was perhaps the largest battle looming on the horizon. The relationship between doctrine and practice in the Lutheran Church would be questioned, and this would lead to numerous theological conflicts conflicts amongst Lutherans, but also broadly amongst Protestants up to this present day. Now, as with most disagreements regarding ideology and practice, the key issue is emphasis. You might have a founding document, say a theological confession or a constitution, but if there are differing opinions as to the interpretation, emphasis, and ethos of these documents, there will be schism. Of course, modern American political issues can be implied here. I'll let you make your own inferences uh, here. Robert Preuss one of the great Lutheran theologians of the last century, has referred to the time period of the late 16th century and the early 17th century as the golden age of Lutheran orthodoxy. And much can be said to support his claim. The the works of Martin Chemnitz and Johann Gerhard, uh, amongst others, helped to explicate Lutheran doctrines in and as set down by the confessional Lutheran documents, especially the Book of Concord, in the late 16th century. And while there is no disputing the intellectual significance of these works, the the social, popular impact of them was muted by another work, a work that would go on to be the best-selling book of the 17th century in all of Europe, a small devotional book written by a Lutheran pastor named Johann Arndt. It was entitled True Christianity. And while virtually unheard of in the English-speaking world today, this book helped to shape the conflict that would soon erupt in the Lutheran church. 
Now, the idea of this book, True Christianity, is quite simple. It borrows heavily from medieval sources, and Arndt reminds us that so too did Luther. And then it goes on to lay out a practical plan for living the true Christian life. The beginning of the work begins with the aphorism, Christ has many followers, but few disciples. That is, many claim to be Christians, but not all of them are. Well, this may be so, but here comes the rub that becomes explicit throughout the text. How do you know that you are a true disciple? I suppose that some of us who have spent long enough trying to figure this out end up more unsure and confused than when we first began. And while a simple layperson such as myself might find consternation with this type of questioning, this book found a broad audience. One historian has called true Christianity the single most influential, influential devotional book in Lutheran history. In fact, this book of Arndt's True Christianity would be published and translated with at least 300 republications in 14 languages within a century. That's a lot. And in 1751, German immigrants in America requested copies of True Christianity, and a young unknown printer, Benjamin Franklin, ordered copies to be printed, making Arndt's work the first German book printed in America. Now, to claim that Arndt was the beginning of all the schism and evils in the Lutheran Church is misrepresenting him. He reflected new thoughts regarding piety, but pietism as a particular movement was more than half a century away. In fact, one of the parishioners that Arndt would form a close relationship through the years was with that aforementioned Johann Gerhard, the Orthodox Lutheran theologian, famous for his many exegetical, historical, and practical works. Throughout the years of his life, Arndt, he was continually supported by Gerhard. Gerhard would come to his defense against various Lutheran theological faculties, charging Arndt with heresy. And, and Gerhard would explain that Arndt thought better than he wrote. <laughs> Something my doctoral supervisor said of me a number of times. Uh, Gerhard knew Arndt, he did. Uh, Gar Gerhard knew Arndt from Arndt's time defending the Lutheran Church against encroachment from other confessions. <clears throat> and uh, significantly, from a time when Gerhard was seriously ill as a young man, and he credited Arndt as tending to him both physically and spiritually. And it seems doubtful from Arndt's personal correspondence that he wished to cause any schism. But what is significant is that this book suggested a new emphasis that would be pushed further in subsequent years. Arndt claimed or attempted to blend orthodoxy and piety. 
right thinking with right living. And here he could claim Luther, who was also quite interested in the fruits of faith. After all, it was Luther who wrote in the preface to the book of Romans, Faith, however, is a divine work in us that changes us and makes us to be born anew of God. It kills the old Adam and makes us altogether different men in heart and spirit and mind and powers. And it brings with it the Holy Spirit. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. The role of good works in Luther's theology is then quite explicit. But as I mentioned earlier, it is a matter of emphasis and interpretation which would cause this schism in the Lutheran church. And there was a schism on the horizon. Whatever Arndt's true intentions, he would be adopted and interpreted by some of the most influential figures in the Protestant church in the coming centuries. Perhaps most specifically, Philip Jacob Spainer and John Wesley. Uh, The former I'll I'll deal with. The latter is, once again, a story for a different time. But very quickly. Uh, We can trace Arntian piety through England and the Puritans and into America via John Wesley and the foundation of the Methodist church. The term Methodist... Uh, is is something similar in proposing uh, what aren't proposed, a method to living the true Christian life. Now, Philip Jacob Spainer, he's rightly credited as being the founder of Lutheran pietism. And his seminal work, the Pia Desideria, Pious Desires, started out as simply a brief introduction to a publication of Arndt's sermons. Now, Spainer was a brilliant scholar, writing treatises on history, and his doctoral dissertation at the University of Strasbourg was on the political thought of Thomas Hobbes. In 1670, he set up the uh, Collegia Pietatis, that is the College of the Pious, groups that would meet privately to promote more effective Christian living. Although the term he used was Pietatis, he did not like the term Pietist. Like Protestant or Lutheran, it was initially a pejorative to identify a sect. But the term stuck. And eventually it was adopted by this new brand of what we might call internally oriented Lutherans. One of these, Joachim Feller, would state, Pietists. The name is known throughout the world. What is a pietist? One who studies God's word and leads a life according to it. And here's the rub. To get anywhere to understand and to navigate through this historical issue, we need solid definitions. And Pastor Feller, while perhaps well-intentioned, did us no favors. If a pietist is simply one who reads God's word and lives according to it, well, depending on what we mean by lives according to it, it may encompass most of the church throughout all time, or perhaps 
exclude everyone in the church throughout all the time. Nevertheless, let's define our terms now. First, what is an orthodox Lutheran? In the 17th century, uh, Johann Valentine Andrea suggested that it was one who liked their sermon short and their bratwurst long. (laughs) Not bad. Not bad. But... It has historically been defined as one who accepts the teachings of the Lutheran confessions in the Book of Concord as they are the correct summary and explanation of the scriptures. And here is where there's a modern break with the ELCA, but that's a story for a different day. Second, let's define piety, not the ism yet. What is that? Well, I'd like to suggest we define the term broadly as to fidelity to natural obligations. This term is translated from the Latin pietas. It has a pagan genesis. It was what a Roman child had for his parents and what a Roman man had for his gods. We can actually go all the way back to the dialogues of Plato where we find the idea of euthrufron, a sort of piety, a discussion Socrates has. So this term piety perhaps has pagan origins, but it is certainly, certainly part of the Christian faith. Fidelity, faith, faithfulness, natural obligations... Perhaps we can see that as that which comes naturally. For Luther, it was something you couldn't really help but to do. As we heard, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. But now the ism, we've done piety, now the ism or the ist Now, I don't hate all isms and ists, uh, many of them, but I'm a fan of a number of them. But when we use isms and ists, we have to define them carefully. Pietism and pietist. These are completely meaningless and useless terms, unless defined as a historical movement. It developed in space and time with a particular people in particular places. Philip Jacob Spainer is the first pietist. His Pia Desideria is the first pietist text. It begins a theological and a social movement. We can identify it through Spainer and his followers with the following four markers. Uh, This, I think, is what is missing in a lot of the discussion on what is pietism uh, in the modern church. So I have four markers for you. One, it stresses the heart over the head. It doesn't exclude the head. And it is not the only movement to suggest this emphasis. So we're going to add some more qualifiers. Two, it stresses the need for an ecclesiola in ecclesia. That is, a little church within a larger church. Small groups, Bible studies, etc. 
Once again, this isn't novel. It doesn't even need to suggest any kind of malicious intent. It's simply a marker. Although in certain German Lutheran churches, it did lead to the idea that the divine service and sacraments were not necessarily necessary. But we need some more markers, and we have them. Marker number three, it stresses a certain eschatology. That is the understanding of the end times. It is post-millennial. Briefly, what is that? Uh, I'm really glad that Lutherans were really bad on eschatology. Our idea of the end times is, is no good, and that, that, that's what brought me to this church. Post-millennial. <laughs> I need another sermon on the mark of the beast. <clears throat> Barcode in the back of the... Post-millennial. That is, Christ will return after the thousand-year reign of peace on earth. Through social amelioration, the betterment of society, the spread of the gospel and church, this time of peace created by us will reign in this thousand-year time, this millennium, and then post, after that, Jesus returns. Post-millennial. Now we're getting closer. And finally... It stresses the incomplete nature of Luther's early Reformation and the subsequent formulation of this Reformation in the Lutheran Confessions. It stresses the incomplete nature of Luther's Reformation. There we go. If a friend is talking about a so-called pietist, you can question if that person is really a pietist by using these four markers. In fact, the so-called pietist probably only exhibits one or two of these four markers. They may have pietist leanings. Now, the pastor and the theologian can explain the right measure of head versus heart, the proper use of small group Bible study, and the proper understanding of the end times. I leave that uh, to my pastors. But I am interested in that last section the part that really separates this group from the others. It is a reaction to the Lutheran orthodoxy of the 16th century. And to be a reaction to something, you must claim to understand that something so you can oppose it. So how did, historically speaking, these pietists understand this orthodoxy they claim to be part of an incomplete reformation. Well, there is a uh, spectrum of dissent. One rather radical pietist, Heinrich uh, Mueller, criticized the Lutheran church. He was a pastor in the Lutheran church, but he criticized it for worshiping the four dumb idols of the church. The baptismal font, the pulpit, the confessional, and the altar. He stressed the inward nature of Christianity as opposed to these so-called dumb idols. For him and perhaps less radical pietists, Orthodox Lutheranism did not stress the internal enough. An Orthodox Lutheran to them is flawed in that he is caught up with things outside of him. Now perhaps here we might suggest that the pietists definition of piety is peculiar. 
It is primarily a internal devotional life. There is new birth, and that may occur at the font of holy baptism, but the focus is on the renewal of oneself in cooperation with God's grace. This is made very explicit in Spanner's work. From this cooperation, something like perfection is possible in this life. Now, Spanner would be very, very careful speaking of perfection. Uh, That later gentleman I mentioned earlier, John Wesley, uh, well, he would write quite openly of it, uh, and you can read about this uh, in his text on Christian perfection. Spanner preached a sermon in Berlin where he warned his congregation that they may have, in fact, lost their baptismal grace, that they needed to be reborn again, maybe again, maybe again. The faith given to them at baptism didn't do what Luther said earlier it would. For Luther, one with faith cannot help but to do good works. And here we will see a schism or perhaps two schisms that make up one. This is the distinction between external and internal, active and passive. Now, a certain theologian discussing a variation of Spanner's thought from Orthodox Lutheranism is Spainer's stress on the, sorry for the foreign phrases, the Christus in nobis, that is, Christ in us, as opposed to the Christus pro nobis, that is, Christ for us. External and internal, one stresses one, the other, the other. To quote Dr. Rosenblatt, it's what emphasis you put on the syllable. Now, Spanner used two phrases extensively. He liked the term new birth and renewal. The first, according to Spanner, is passive, new birth, and the second is active, renewal. You were baptized. You were passive. You did nothing. But he warned his parishioners that they may have fallen from that thing which happened to you and thus need to renew yourself. You need to be active. Now, the comforting aspect of this is that your activity is observable. Your passivity might not be. Now, both Spainer and Orthodox Lutheranism believe that good works were necessary, or at least necessarily followed the new birth. But Luther warned his readers that they should refrain from relying on seeing their own good works. If the emphasis is on the active, that is, what you do, you may soon despair. If the emphasis is on the passive, what has objectively been done for you and to you, you can live knowing that concerning the faith which has been given to you, well, it is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. I have not done anything novel or groundbreaking here. In these past few minutes, I have been leaning heavily on the doctors of theology. But I focused on Spainer for a reason. He is the founder of a particular ism. It is an ism that sees piety primarily as internal and active. And our Lutheran confessions do not deny this. But it's the emphasis. That which, which makes 
this kind of piety, pietism, an explicit reaction to the orthodox emphasis on the external and passive. Exegetes, systematic theologians, pastors, they can argue which is the proper understanding of of these things. But as a historical movement, Lutheran orthodoxy is one thing and pietism another. All right, we are going to pause right there in the lecture and uh, pay some bills. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Also, send any questions you have for Lane Chaplin, reg- uh, for Kim Riddlebarger regarding uh, Harold Camping. Same address. Uh, or you can uh, follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Follow me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You, you got it all. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hello, I received a Build a God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just... Angry, righteous, wrathful. The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is, too. Oh, wonderful. Your goddess is coming along beautifully. Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent. Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm. I think... I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. I'm excited to announce the arrival of our latest book. 
It's entitled The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by, well, me, Chris Rosebro. This collection of sermons defines what it means to be Christ-centered and cross-focused. They masterfully deliver both law and gospel so that your sins are brought to light and Christ's sufferings and blood are placarded in order to bring you to repentance and the comforting assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Luther's style in these sermons is bold, in-your-face, uncompromising, and and pastoral. These sermons are expository in their delivery and read like a lay-level Bible commentary and are perfect for both devotional as well as theological reading. You can get your copy of The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners a couple of ways. One, visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and join our crew anytime between now and the end of May of 2011, and you'll receive an email giving you instructions on how you can download your copy of this wonderful little book. Of course, if you'd like to pay for it without joining our crew, you can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. That's piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. You'll see a couple of links whereby you can purchase it, download it, and begin reading it immediately. This is not a book that you're going to want to miss, and this is not the kind of book that sits idly on your, in your library. This is one that you're going to definitely want to read over and again. It's that good. So what are you waiting for? Get your copy today. All right, we are back. Warning, there well, there are dangers to pietism. We'll talk more about that in future updates. Fight for the faith. need to remind you all fighting for the faith is listener supported radio we are currently in the middle of a drive to add 350 new members to our crew well we haven't quite gotten there yet yesterday we uh, we crossed the one-third of the way there mark so if you have if you have not already joined our crew we truly truly could use your help we uh, uh the the idea here is you know to make it so that we can make our budget every month, pay all of our expenses, and continue doing what we're doing. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of the seriousness of all of this. Anyway, if you're not already a member of our crew, visit fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button when you get there. When you do, I'll send you an email uh, giving you instructions on how to download our latest book, The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners. And uh, in next month, we have another book that we're going to be offering, uh, basically only for our crew members. Next month, you won't be able to actually... Purchase it individually. So if you're a member of our crew, we'll all be sending you the link to download our next book next month. Plus, you also get discounts on uh, limited edition merchandise like the uh, T-shirt we're selling for our T-shirt bake sale for the next month uh, to help us make budget in the month of June. So if you don't already support us by being a member of our crew, it's only $6.95 every month. Of course, if you would like to make a contribution by specifying the amount, um, you can do that a couple of ways. Click on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, let's continue with our lecture on uh, on pietism and, uh, and Lutheran Orthodoxy from uh, Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis. Here we go. Piety, piety is not a historical movement. It's typological. It's not foreign to orthodoxy or to pietism. But by taking that word piety and 
slapping it to an ism suggests that perhaps the pietists thought that they were the truly pious ones. But historic Lutheranism, that which pietism was a reaction to, understood piety as well. This schism in the Lutheran soul in the 17th and 16th century, the fractioning of the Lutheran church is found in documents with particular definitions and emphases. And while not all schisms can be repaired, we should recognize this this one. We should see its historical basis and the author's intended definitions and emphases. To not do so would leave us in a state of name-calling without historical background and definitions. Thank you very much. As I, as I mentioned, uh, that, that was um, uh, perhaps too much and too small a, a time. Uh, so right now, questions. Uh, if you could wait for, for Jim to bring the microphone to you, uh, you can ask me questions, and I reserve the right to dodge them and uh, direct you to the pastors and uh, to those who, you know, I see a whole bunch of smart people around me, but I'll, I'll do my best. All right. <clears throat> uh, you mentioned Spainer and Mueller. And I think, you know, this is obviously a quick uh, overview, um, but there is a distinction between the two of those, right? Um, according to Dr. Clark at Cambridge, he mentioned that Spainer worked very hard to, to incorporate this movement within what was the legitimate expression of Lutheran worship at the time and all that. Yes. But I, th- I get the sense that Mueller was really, <clears throat> you know, contrary against it. So I don't know if you have any comments about that. Yeah, no. Um, and that's where I, I, I should perhaps just stress uh, the nature of Spainer. And I, I wanted to say, um, I'm not a big fan, uh, but you, you can't, I mean, this is the reason he hated the term pietist, because he said, listen, this isn't a sect. This is the proper understanding or the proper telos, endpoint." of that thing Luther started that now we're finishing. Uh, And so he wanted to stay and thought that he was staying within the Lutheran church. Uh, What I have done more extensively than than Justin today is to focus that that really it's what he's doing in many ways undercuts a lot of the work that the early reformers were trying to do. And that's the problem. And that's why I think we need definitions. Uh, Like I said, there there is, um, Spainer was a smart guy. Uh, but when he was wrong, I think he was very, very wrong. Thank you very much, Doctor. Uh, I'm wondering, the Age of Enlightenment, was that, involved, was that uh, related at all to the uh, pietism? All right, the question is the relationship between the Age of Enlightenment and pietism. Oh, boy. Well, let, let's go to a long lunch, and I'd love to talk about that, but I'll, I'll keep it very short. Um, there are aspects, there were aspects of the Age of Enlightenment uh, which were certainly antithetical to any kind of conservative Christian thought. Aspects of the Enlightenment. Uh, and what we see is, is we see a, a kind of collision course uh, between some of these, um, uh, for lack of a better word, more liberal uh, elements of the Enlightenment and historic uh, Protestant Christianity. And one of the things as pietism sort of catches on 
is that we see many of the pietists retreat, or at least um, they take their Protestantism, their Lutheranism, and and they kind of push that away and and stress the rational uh, instead. Uh, Someone like uh, Dr. Brandt could talk to you about Immanuel Kant, who grew up in a Lutheran home, a Lutheran pietist home, and then does some silly stuff. He's the guy to talk to. Uh, But there certainly is a relationship between the sort of so-called rational uh, enlightenment and I don't want to use the word irrational as a pejorative, but the the emphasis on on feeling uh, in Lutheran pietism in the 17th and 18th century. It's a a big topic, but... You said that uh, Arndt had um, Gerhardt defending him to a degree. Did Spener have any Orthodox Lutheran that we'd call Orthodox um, defending him in that same way, or was he pretty much out on a limb and only had lay people following him? I mean, well, and some pastors, of course, but was there any solid By person By the time Spener is working, and this is the, the late 17th century, um, according to, to fellows like Robert Preuss, uh, they would say that the, the age of orthodoxy wasn't what it was. So there, there were no Gerhards or Chemnitzes uh, around, uh, but that's not to suggest that Spener's followers were just a bunch of, uh, you know, sort of illiterate barbarians. Um, he was very popular at a number of institutions. Granted, these institutions, which weren't necessarily that big on historic Lutheran orthodoxy, um, not to um, say anything bad about Dr. Rosenblatt's alma mater, uh, but the University of Strasbourg uh, wasn't exactly the... Um, you know, the, the center of Lutheran orthodoxy. And, and eventually what Spainer would do is Spainer actually, that, the reason he's the first pietist is because uh, when he moves and, and sets up uh, his center, that Collegia Pietatis, he's the father. And he's going to influence a new generation uh, in a city called Halle, in sort of northeast uh, Germany. And it's going to be the center. And from him, he's going to have um, August Terma Franca, Zinzendorf and others. So, yeah, he doesn't really have someone behind him. He's the first. He's sui generis. He's the first of his kind. Sorry. The, the question is, is Spainer did get kicked out. Um, I would have to look at the, the extent. I, I'd, I'd be curious to look at, and this is something you can do. I certainly can, can look up. Uh, the extent to which late 17th century Lutheranism um, would, would ban you, would, would excommunicate you. Um, if I remember correctly here, Spainer is sort of a rambler, and he's going to move from place to place. Um, so in terms of him actually being officially banned, certainly uh, what you see here, are Lutheran, when someone is writing like Spainer, what you'll find is the faculties of Lutheran universities, the theology faculties, will get together and condemn someone as a heretic. Now, does that mean that his local pastor will refuse him, uh, you know, the Lord's Supper? Uh, we can't. We don't have the records to say exactly what happened. But no, he certainly was uh, condemned as heretical by a number of um, the University of Jena being one of them. Uh, by a number of Lutheran theological faculties. Uh, just a question maybe for others to join in as well, but w- w- any you know, speculation in terms of the implications of that, you know, that time in history and, and what that means 
in the church today? Has this yes. just created all kinds of just continual problems and, and, yeah. and issues and what, what they might be? Yeah, this is, um, I, I believe, uh, I'm going to be doing um, a, a few more of these. Uh, and in doing these, um, I, I want to sort of hear what you guys want to talk about. When it comes to practical um, relevance today, I, I, can, I can, you know, take a shot at it, you know. Um, but I, de- but I, I, I do see that the beginning of this sort of schism in the Lutheran church is here. It, it happened a little bit after 1530. It happened a little bit after Luther died. It happened a little bit after 1580. Aren't certainly is very significant, but he didn't. He didn't do. It wasn't as dangerous as some people have painted him to be. But with Spener, there we see a split, and we see a split in the Lutheran Church. Even I think within uh, the LCMS, we, we see this. Which, and and I think part of it is we just don't know our history. And we don't know which side we're lining up on. We just think, well, this is, I grew up in this kind of church. You know, we had this kind of uh, preaching and this kind of jello, and that's what Lutheran is. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't grow up in the Lutheran church, but that's what I understand. Ah, Bob Elwell. Yes, I, uh, I, w- I was just going to ask you regarding that, the, the status of Lutheran pietism today, and where do we see it? Um. If you drive from here, uh, if you, I'm not going to give you directions. It was being taped, you know, sued for, uh, everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. Um, in terms of this, uh, and like I said, pietism is a particular movement. And to really understand pietism, not just as a sort of, oh, that guy's a pietist. All oh, right, he prays before food or you know, something that's, don't do that. Um, pietism is a particular movement, and that's why I brought up the four things that I think make up historic pietism. Uh, that is heart, a little over the head, right? Um, <clears throat> that is a certain eschatology. That is a certain understanding of the end times. And, and that's quite peculiar, or, or, peculiar and interesting uh, for Spain or to be post-millennial. Uh, just about every Lutheran that came before them either said, don't talk to me about the end times, I know nothing. Or they would say, Jesus is coming. He's coming. And if anything, they would be premillennial. That is, if they saw that there was going to be a millennium of peace, uh, they sure as heck uh, weren't going to uh, usher it in, right? These weren't the, the saints that were going to go marching and ushering in a thousand-year reign. They didn't have the optimism that Spainer had. Uh, so it's got um, that, that head over heart, which, or heart over head, which isn't necessarily anything that um, is peculiar to it. Uh, that... that um, uh, stress on the little church within the larger church, you'll see that. And, and, and listen, I, uh, personal Bible study, certainly. Small group Bible study. These aren't bad things at all. But I'm saying when you take the, the stress over the heart over the head, the need, the need for ecclesiola in ecclesia, uh, which, refer, which is a kind of anti-clericalism, which is, um, we don't need a pastor. We don't need sacraments. I can do it by myself, Right? Uh, and then when, you, when it finally stresses the incomplete nature of the Lutheran Reformation, most churches today will not claim that they are simply completing the Reformation that was begun by Luther, so on and so forth. That is because they, prob- they may uh, not have a very good understanding of what their Protestant forebears 
believed, and they'll call themselves Protestants. So it's it's everywhere to some degree. Yeah. Hope that helps. Yes, Art. Doctor, uh, I think there are about eight times you referenced a uh, story that was to be discussed at some other time, and I would encourage you to do that. Uh, this has been very interesting. Thank you. The story? Which story? All of them. <laughs> All of them. Okay. Well, I think one of them that, that, that I, I think is very important for us today, where I can do you a little history for you, uh, is the work of Arndt and Spainer. Spainer died two years before John Wesley was born. And Spainer, or sorry, Wesley dug Arndt. And Spainer, when you could get translations, there's a translation issue. But from here... Um, we see it moving into and affecting the Puritans, who, of course, come into the New World, Massachusetts Bay Colony, so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, whoa, what's going on? And we've got a sort of Lutheran pietism right in America. Also very interesting in, um, uh, in Sweden, who they, they, to some extent, they love Lutheranism, but they don't really understand it. Uh, and they come over, uh, and it's, it's uh, Swedish Lutherans. Uh, yeah, Rod is, Rod is agreeing. He's, his head is shaking like a bobblehead doll. Yeah, they, they have something very particular. So, yeah, later times uh, I will, uh, I can get into those, absolutely. Uh-oh. Okay, Dr. Rosenblatt's asked me a question. He taught me about eight colleges, eight schools, eight, eight classes in college. It's like a final all over again. What do you got? <laughs> no, very simply, what you're describing has a lot, almost hand in glove, with American evangelicalism. Am I seeing that or not? Absolutely. I, and I, this is where I was saying, listen, to understand where we are, I want to start with the death of Luther, the, the Peace of Augsburg, the Book of Concord, Arndt, and Spainer. That's what we want to do. <clears throat> and that's what I'm probably best suited to do. But, oh goodness, yeah, you go into Wesley, Spainer to Wesley to the Puritans, uh, up into Sweden, and then you can, you can make a really confusing map on the board that shows you all of the denominations and, and where they, um, who they pick up. And if it's Luther, it's a little bit of Luther. Um, and if it's Arndt or Spainer, even if they don't recognize it as such, it's a lot of that. That's modern evangelicalism. Okay, uh, uh, thanks for the talk. I'm now going to demonstrate that I'm not a good listener. Um, <laughs> I've you known mentioned, that you, you mentioned four things that were markers of the pietist movement. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the church within the church, the... the uh, Emphasis on post-millennialism, on uh, the fact that Lutheran, the Lutheran Reformation wasn't finished, mm -hmm. and heart over, or heart ahead of head. Heart ahead so, of something, head, yeah, absolutely. Heart ahead of head, or yeah. head ahead of heart, or heart, whatever, <laughs> I don't know. But anyways, the, I'm trying to see how we get out of this. I understand they didn't like the, t the title. How do we get pietism out of that? I mean, I could imagine somebody having all these views and being completely antinomian, right? Uh, I mean, just saying, the important thing is what I really believe. Well, the, right? You yeah, also yeah, said, the, said that, something about emphasizing the internal over the external. Yes. And, and it could all just turn on this whole thing about what I really believe and have nothing to do with yeah. piety. Uh, uh, let me make two comments here. One is post-millennialism. You, you can't, I don't think, be antinomian and post-millennial, right? Because post-millennial says, we need to do these things. 
we need to set these things up, set these things up, and not all bad things. Hala, the, the foundation, the center of, of, of pietism, uh, actually had some wonderful things set up by the church, hospitals, schools, so on and so forth. Um, that doesn't make, make the movement or its doctrine true. Uh, but there were some, some great things they set up there. So when your eschatology is post-millennial, um, you're not just sort of waiting around for Jesus to come and, and uh, whisk you away. You've got to do things such that he comes back. I, I guess, yeah, okay. I suppose if you had that view of post-millennialism, you might yeah. have the view that it's just going to miraculously happen, that God's yeah, going to just, they don't. just it, do things. But yeah, they, they given don't. that they, they had that spin on it, I guess I can see that, yeah. that connection. And I think that's why, like I said, you need all four of those things or else the name-calling, you're not really saying what historic pietism is. All right, so there you have it. I like being able to say amen at the end of a lecture. This is, that wasn't that kind of thing. Oh, well. Anyway, this is uh, part one. Part two uh, will be our next week's edition. You know, stay tuned. Again, you're thinking, why are you playing this? There's reasons for it. Just hang in there. You'll you'll see as uh, as we develop this topic a little further and what I do with it and, you know, why we're putting this into the mix. Anyway, uh, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, listener-supported radio. If you're not a member of our crew already, join our crew. We definitely need your help. We're only one-third of the way to our goal of uh, 350 new crew members, and, uh, you know, we need to be able to make budgets. So, uh, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the friendly yellow button that says join our crew. I'll send you a link to download our latest ebook. And uh, And again, those of you who who are, have been faithfully supporting us, I just want to say thank you. I cannot thank you enough for your financial help and support uh, to make this program uh, possible and, you know, and Pirate Christian Radio also as well. So um, anyway, so what do you think? I'd love to get your feedback from today's uh, lecture on uh, orthodoxy and pietism and the distinctions between the two of them. And if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, including uh, any questions you have for Kim Riddlebarger for, uh, you know, to be delivered via Lane Chaplin's video podcast, uh, send me an email. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Yes, it applies to you, Christian. Amen. Amen.